Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, I'm Steph and this is Not Today. I am your host with the most, and although this is not my first solo episode, this is my second solo episode. So for those of you who are new here, this is Not Today, a true survival story podcast where I tell you stories that will truly knock your socks off. And the story that I have for you today is truly no exception. But before I get into that, I wanted to quickly tell you about our Patreon, because there's some really cool stuff going on over there, guys. So as of right now, our bonus episode number 16 poll is currently live. Our patrons get to vote every month on episodes that they want to hear. And then, of course, I tell the winning story every single month. So here are the options for the poll that is currently listed right now. Option number one is the bone breaker. And the description for that is on July 29th, 1995, 17-year-old Joseph Clark abducted 13-year-old Thaddeus Phillips from his home in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Later known as the Bonebreaker Killer, Clark kidnapped fellow teen boys and systematically broke their bones. Option number two is Jim and Jennifer Stolpa. Jim and Jennifer Stolpa and their infant son, Clayton, were traveling to Idaho to attend a funeral when they got trapped in a blizzard. While trekking off to find help, a wrong turn leads them deep into the unforgiving wilderness. And our last option is John Thompson. While working alone on his parents' North Dakota farm, one January morning in 1992, 18-year-old John Thompson became entangled in a piece of machinery, and in an instant, both of his arms were severed. So these are the options for bonus episode number 16. If you'd like to vote on which one you'd like to hear and hear whichever one wins, head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. But that being said, I have a really insane story for you today as well. So why don't we jump right on into that? Arthur Duperalt was a prominent optometrist from Green Bay, Wisconsin, who had served time in the Navy during World War II as a medical corpsman on the Burma Road. He married a woman named Jean, who was a secretary for the FBI when they first met. Jean was a very artistic woman and very athletic. She and Arthur had a quick courtship, which was common during the Second World War. Before the two of them got married and had three kids, Brian, Terry Joe, and Renee. And in 1961, Arthur Duperalt was 40 years old, his wife Jean, 38, and their three children, Brian, was aged 14, Terry Joe, 11, and little Renee was 7 years old. It had always been a dream for Arthur to live on a boat and sail around the world with his family. But before they did that, he came up with the idea that the family should charter a boat and sail to the Bahamas for a vacation to see if they could handle being on the water together. They were a happy family. Arthur taught his kids a lot about the outdoors. And 11-year-old Terry Jo was very close with her father. They both had very similar interests, so they loved spending time together. 
But even in the happiest of families, putting all of them together on a boat for an extended period of time with no real distractions could lead to a lot of problems. So I'm sure Arthur thought this vacation trip to the Bahamas would be the perfect test. In the fall of 1961, the family traveled from Green Bay, Wisconsin, down to Florida, where Arthur chartered a luxury yacht named the Bluebell. The boat was a 60-foot, twin-masted sailing catch. Unable to captain the ship, Arthur also brought his friend and former Marine and World War II veteran Julian Harvey as his skipper, along with Harvey's new wife, Mary Dean. Lots of people liked Julian Harvey. He was described as a, quote, handsome, curly-haired, flat-bellied man of 44, which, I guess, okay, slay, skinny legend, but he was a familiar figure around the Florida ports where he worked as a captain and sometimes seaman on chartered yachts. For 16 years, Harvey had been in the Air Force. He flew in North Africa, Europe, and the South Pacific during World War II. During his long service, his decorations included an air medal with eight oak leaf clusters and a DFC with a cluster. And I don't personally know what that means, but it sounds pretty impressive if I do say so myself. Julian Harvey would be captain of the Bluebell, and his wife of four months would serve as her husband's crew and ship's cook. The Duperalt's plan was to make a trip from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas. Their trip began in early November, 1961. They had spent the first few days of the trip sailing out on the Atlantic. And after those few days, they made it to Sandy Point, their only port of call, where they spent a very pleasant weekend on the beach. The children enjoyed snorkeling in the waters around these islands, and at first, everything was great. Dr. Duperalt told Roderick Finder, the British District Commissioner, that it had been, quote, a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. And for some reason, the decision was made that they were going to begin their trip back by sailing through the night. Terry and her siblings were excited about that because they had never gone sailing at night before. And it seemed like a very nice, friendly evening. Everyone had been getting along, and in the early hours of the evening, Terry Jo made her way down to the cabin she shared with her sister for bed, while the adults enjoyed what was left of their vacation. That night was the last night Terry Jo would spend with her family. Unbeknownst to Terry Jo Duperalt, by the time she would wake up on November 13th, Captain Julian Harvey had already murdered his wife and stabbed the rest of Terry Jo's family to death. On November 13th, at 12.35 p.m., Julian Harvey had been found on a dinghy in the middle of the ocean. A crew member aboard an oil tanker called the Gulf Lion saw a man waving frantically from a dinghy in the water. Harvey yelled to the man, quote, help, I have a dead baby on board. As the ship crew pulled the man on board, they noticed the body of a red-haired young girl wearing a life jacket lying on the floor of the dinghy. This was the body of seven-year-old Renee. The man identified himself as Julian Harvey, and explained that at approximately 11 p.m. the previous evening, the Bluebell ship had gotten caught in a sudden tropical squall, which caused the ship to keel over and the main mast to snap. Mary Harvey and Dr. Duperalt were slightly injured, but not badly, and the splintered mast pierced the deck. Harvey was separated from the others by the fallen mast, 
and a fire then broke out in the fuel storage tank, spreading to the crumpled sails. Quickly, Harvey released the dinghy and a raft and ordered the others to abandon ship. He then dove after them and swam to the drifting dinghy. He recovered Renee, unconscious, while floating in an oversized life jacket from the water. The five others had vanished in the sea. The next morning, the child was dead, and Harvey was picked up by a passing ship. His depiction of the evening was detailed, and left little doubt that this is what really happened to the Bluebell and its members. But as we know now, Julian Harvey was lying. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. For the next three days, rescue missions were sent out across the area Harvey claimed the ship had sunk in, in hopes that they would find remaining survivors, but with no luck. On November 15th, Julian Harvey was brought to Miami for further questioning by the U.S. Coast Guard. Questioning went on for the next two days. However, on the 17th, five days after the Bluebell had sunk and midway through Harvey's interrogation, a captain ran into the room and said, there's a survivor. After hearing those words, Harvey yelled out, oh my God before quickly calming himself to say, why, that's wonderful. Which, to me, sounds something like an old-timey villain would say in an old-timey black-and-white movie in a transatlantic accent. That's exactly how I pictured it. And truly, the events that happened in this story sound like they could have happened in an old, scary, black-and-white movie. And Although Julian Harvey does not have a curly handlebar mustache with thunder and lightning happening behind him as he, like, creeps around, that's how I picture him. And I encourage you to do the same, because he's the villain of our story. And just saying why that's wonderful does sound like something a creepy transatlantic villain would say. Anyway, I digress. But from that point on, his behavior in the interrogation changed drastically. And not long after that information had been shared that there was a survivor, Harvey asked if he could be excused from the interrogation for the moment, since he was quite tired and he wanted to speak with his deceased wife's family, which, of course, there's nothing suspicious about him flipping the script and immediately being tired after being told there's a survivor of the situation. Nothing weird about that at all. After leaving the interrogation office, Julian Harvey drove to the Sandman Motel, where he promptly checked into a room under a fake name. The next morning, Julian Harvey was found dead in a pool of blood in his room. A maid had come in to clean, but instead was met by something much more shocking. In a hospital, only seven miles away, Terry Joe Duperalt was in a coma and fighting to stay alive. 
Not only had her rescue been picked up by the media across the country, but on top of that, rumors began swirling about the sudden death of Julian Harvey. Harvey's friends explained that his suicide had come from enduring one tragedy too many in a lifetime of mishaps, which we'll get into a little bit later. But it raised so many questions about what actually happened the night the bluebell sank. And now the only person who could shed any kind of light on that was unconscious and in the hospital and 11 years old. People were anxiously waiting for Terry to wake up to get some real answers about what happened that night. And on November 20th, the truth finally came out. Terry Jo was awake and ready to share her side of the story. The night of November 12th, Terry Jo had been awoken by her brother screaming. It was the type of scream that when she heard it, she knew something terrible had happened. She then heard her brother call out, help, daddy, help, followed by silence, which is just chilling to think about. Alone in her room, Terry worked up the courage to walk up to the main deck, but nothing could prepare her for what she was about to find. She made her way through the ship and to the kitchen when she found her mother and brother lying on the floor in a pool of blood. In that moment, Terry said she believes she went into shock because she didn't go and touch either of them. Somewhere inside of her, she knew they were dead, but she was unable to fully process what she was seeing in that moment. She thought she saw blood in another area of the cockpit, and she believes she saw a rifle, but again, she was so dazed in that moment that it was all pretty blurry. Unable to look at her mother and brother any longer, Terry made her way toward the upper level, hoping to find her father. But instead, she was met by a wild-eyed Julian Harvey. She asked him what happened, but instead of answering her, he shoved her back down the ladder and yelled at her to get back into her room. Terry, who was incredibly trusting, thought that something bad had happened, and Julian was protecting her from seeing whatever that was. Which breaks my heart to think about. The fact that Terry immediately trusted Captain Harvey and felt like he was there to protect her. Which makes sense. They had just spent days together on the ocean. Why would her parents bring her somewhere with someone she couldn't trust? And I'm sure her brain was in protection mode because, logically, someone on the boat would have had to have murdered her mother and brother, but she was... 11 years old and in shock. And I know as a child, it's really hard to go against an authority figure. I mean, personally, I was a very good kid. I don't think it would have been very easy for me to go against what an authority figure was telling me. To doubt that the people who are supposed to be there to keep you safe could actually do something so terrible would be really difficult to do as a child, especially when it all happened so fast. And he was their captain. He was there to keep them safe on the ocean. So I can imagine that it would be even harder for her to see him in a dangerous light, knowing that he was there to get them from point A to point B. Terrified of what she had already seen, she sat down on her bed. But only a few moments later, Terry noticed water start to come into her cabin from under the door. Terror immediately washed over Terry, which quickly turned into panic because she knew that the boat was sinking. 
But before she could do anything, Julian Harvey barged into her cabin with a rifle in his hands. He didn't say a single word. All he did was look at her with madness in his eyes. He stood there for a moment, not breaking eye contact, until he turned around and walked back out. Such a surreal moment. Such a horrifying thing to experience, especially as a child. Julian, for whatever reason, didn't take Terry's life. The boat was going down, and although he was leaving her alive, he thought that she was a goner. She was 11 years old, on a sinking ship, in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the night. Terry waited in her room a bit longer. She was terrified of what she'd find if she left again, and also Julian clearly wanted her back in her room. But as water continued flooding in, she decided she couldn't stay in there any longer. By that point, the water had gotten so high in the cabin that her mattress began floating. Think about how much trust she must have had in Julian Harvey to know that the ship had to be sinking and have the water get so high in her room that her mattress was floating before she decided to go against what he told her to do. She was clearly an obedient child. Terry waded through the water and made her way back up to the top deck once again. Once up there, she saw Captain Harvey setting their dinghy into the water. She asked him if the boat was sinking, but again, no answer from Harvey. He just dove into the black sea before grabbing onto the dinghy as it floated away into the night. And then she was alone. Terry, who was now all by herself, somehow had the presence of mind to remember that there was another life raft tied to the deck. She knew the boat was going down, and she knew that there was no one else there to save her, so it was a do-or-die situation. She scrambled over the sails to the top of the deck, where she knew there was a cork raft tied down. She untied it from the deck and threw it over the side before jumping into it. By the time Terry Joe made it onto the cork raft, the bluebell was gone. It happened that quickly. But the nightmare was far from over. One of the ropes that tied the dinghy to the boat was still attached to the raft. So unless she could untie that rope from the cork raft, the boat would pull it under the water with the ship. So somehow, scrambling in the darkness and unable to see anything, Terry managed to find the knots with her fingers and got them undone with her fingernails just as the boat began to pull her raft underwater. I don't think I can imagine something scarier than that. That's like some hard pirate shit. Like you're going down with the ship. And she didn't even want to. The raft was attached and she had to literally untie it or she would die. Talk about operating under pressure. I mean, damn. So now, huddled in this raft in the dark, motionless and silent, Terry Jo was on her own. And she stayed that way all night. Floating alone into the darkness, Terry Jo realized that Captain Harvey was evil, and she became terrified that he would find her. Even floating out there all by herself, she became convinced that he was a bigger threat to her than the ocean. She was so scared of that possibility that she even refrained from calling out for help because she was convinced he may hear her, and the thought of what he might do to her if he did kept her quiet. She sat there and waited for morning to come, 
and when the sun finally did rise, she was at first relieved to see that she was all alone. Not so much that she was alone on a dinghy in the middle of the ocean, but relieved that Captain Harvey was nowhere in sight. All she could see around her was water in every direction. This tiny cork raft was in the shape of an oval, and in the center was interlaced rope. It was kind of like a cork donut, with mesh in the hole of the donut for her to sit in. That was the only way she could be, was sitting in the interlaced rope in the center. It was very small. Even though it only needed to hold one 11-year-old girl, she did not have very much room at all. So the next day, she sat in the raft with her feet dangling over the side. But as she sat in the rope, her bottom and her feet were submerged in the water. And soon enough, parrotfish began feeding on her. And, okay, I looked up parrotfish, and they have a full set of chompers. Those guys look like they would happily eat your flesh and smile while doing it. In an article, there was a quote that said, I was reminded that this is a fish that crunches up coral all day and is responsible for so much of the white sand on beaches. So this fish eats coral and it does not lose its teeth. And it's like human teeth. Like it looks like a human set of teeth. Meaning the hardness of parrotfish's teeth is about 530 tons of pressure per square inch. This is equivalent to a stack of 88 African elephants compressed inside of a single square inch of space. Parrotfish have approximately 1,000 teeth situated in 15 rows, and each tooth is cemented to the others and surrounded by bone to form a solid beak. And as someone with trypophobia and a fear of the ocean in general, that fact kind of makes me want to vom. I gotta be honest. If you guys don't know what trypophobia is, I didn't either until I googled it and found out that I, in fact, have it, but it's basically like a fear or discomfort. I don't like when I see things that are clustered together and it's hard to explain, so maybe google it. But my point is, the thought of a thousand teeth situated in 15 rows in a fish's mouth makes me want to crawl inside of myself. But anyway, these parrotfish were feeding on Terry Jo as she sat in this raft, completely helpless. And that made her feet start to bleed, but there was nothing she could do about it. As the hours passed, the sun also became a large threat. She sat there and baked all day. The sun, of course, fried her skin. With no water or food, Terry started thinking about the possibility that she may not last out there, which is when she started focusing on trying to spot any ships or planes in the distance. She was hoping that someone knew the bluebell had gone down and would send a search party. By the next night, Terry was still in the same sitting position, with her feet dangling over the side. She was exhausted, but tried to stay awake as hard as she could. But after a while, her body won, and Terry fell asleep. While she slept, she dreamed she could see the blue lights of an airport landing strip. She could see that her parents were waiting for her at the end of the landing strip, and in her dream, she felt like she was going to meet them. But it was one of those dreams that translated into her unconscious body because... As she went to go meet her parents in her dream, she actually physically jumped out of the raft. 
Once Terry hit the water, she was immediately woken up and in shock. And fortunately, she had not let go of the raft as she jumped in the water, so she was able to quickly scramble back into it. But after that, she knew she couldn't let herself fall back asleep because it was clearly way too dangerous to do that because if she lost the raft, she was a complete goner. The next morning, it was November 14th, as dawn broke, Terry saw off in the distance a small red plane circling. Seeing this plane excited her because she believed she was finally going to be rescued, and this plane was out there searching for survivors from the Bluebell. But there was a problem. The life raft Terry had used to get off the Bluebell was white, and in the ocean, a small white life float looks like nothing in the breaking wave caps. It was impossible to spot this small dinghy among the white wave caps on the open ocean. The red search plane came so close to Terry, she said it was like she could reach up and grab it. In a last attempt to be seen, Terry took her shirt off and waved it around as she screamed, thinking that that would help her be seen. She was so frustrated, the plane circled around her and even dove down just above her head. It was so close to her she could see the details on the underside of the plane. And after that, she was convinced the plane had spotted her and would soon come to her rescue. When the red plane flew off, Terry was devastated. Again, she was alone out there. Until she spotted a ship off in the distance. Frantically, she started to paddle with her hands and feet toward the ship, but it became clear pretty quickly that she'd never be able to reach it in time. And that wasn't the last ship she saw. With each passing ship, she felt more and more helpless that she'd ever be spotted out there. What a cruel thing to go through. To sit on a dinghy in the middle of the ocean and see multiple ships and know that you could be saved at any moment, but none of them can spot you because you're sitting on a white raft? Really? White? Who made that design? I just want to talk. Who thought that would be a good idea? I don't want to yell. I just want to have a conversation. And sometimes, because I come from a big Italian family, my talking sounds like yelling. So maybe I want to yell. But that's just messed up. Poor Terry. Anyway, day four on the dinghy was November 16th. Terry Jo had been holding onto life in her cork raft, but at that point she had lost all hope. And I don't blame her. All she could do was sit there. Her mind was drifting off. Her lips were swollen and dry, her body ached, and her skin was badly burned. She stared ahead, not paying much attention to the passing ships, because they all came and went without seeing her. So what was the point? Terry Jo was barely clinging on to life at that point. She was losing consciousness, and the dinghy had begun falling apart. However, that day, a Greek freighter was going through the Providence Channel in the Bahamas. When Nikolos Bakadakis, I hope I said that right, the second officer of the Greek freighter Captain Theo saw Terry Joe Duperald, he could hardly believe his eyes. He had been scanning the waters of the Northwest Providence Channel, a strait that divides two major islands of the Bahamas, and one of the thousands of tiny dancing whitecaps in the distance caught the officer's eye. Among the hundreds of other boats in the channel, he focused on that single dot and realized it was too large to be a piece of debris and far too small to be a boat that would travel that far out to sea. 
he alerted the captain who put the freighter on a collision course for the speck. At first, he believed the speck may have been a fisherman, but as they got closer, they realized whatever it was, it was far too small for a fisherman to be out on. When they pulled up alongside it, they were shocked to discover a blonde-haired 11-year-old girl floating by herself on a small cork raft. One of the crew members took a picture of Terry Jo squinting into the sun, looking up at the vessel that had saved her. And that image made the front page of Life magazine and was shared around the world. As the men took Terry on board, she was very close to death. She was not far off from falling into a coma and was about to die from exposure and dehydration. Her heartbeat was irregular, her kidneys weren't working, and as Terry was pulled off of the raft, the cork had begun falling apart, and within minutes after her rescue, the raft disintegrated. If she wasn't taken off of that raft at the exact time that she was, she would have died either from exposure and dehydration or from the raft literally falling apart underneath her and she would have drowned. It was the exact last moment Terry Jo could have been saved. Pretty incredible stuff. Terry Jo was airlifted to Mercy Hospital, and by the time she arrived, she was in full shock. However, before falling unconscious, she managed to tell authorities her name, but nothing else. Doctors reported that Terry Jo's condition was serious, but they believed she would make it through. The sinking of the Bluebell and Terry Joe's survival received extensive media coverage in the U.S. and around the world in the early 1960s. Newspapers and magazines published extensive coverage of the events with headlines calling Terry Joe a sea orphan or sea waif, which seems a bit tone deaf to me, but I guess they were just trying to sell papers and get as shocking of a headline as possible, and they used the photo that was taken of Terry Joe on the raft in the ocean. But even without the headline, it was an outrageous story. One of betrayal and murder and scandal and best of all, survival. People were outraged when they found out, but also very pleased that Terry Jo had lived. On November 20th, Terry Jo gave her side of the story to investigators from her hospital bed. She confirmed that everything Captain Harvey said about the events that happened that night was a lie. The mast was intact and there was no sign of a fire. And she testified that the sea was calm, so there wasn't some big storm that cracked the mast and set a fire to the ship and made it sink. It was very clearly Julian Harvey who murdered everyone and then sunk the ship by himself. So he was definitely not banking on Terry Joe to survive and spill the damn beans. It was concluded that the Bluebell had been intentionally sunk and that Julian Harvey had killed everyone on board but her before he made his escape. Authorities were floored by Terry Joe's courage, composure, and fortitude that she had shown throughout the ordeal. While interviewing her, they asked her several times if she was tired and needed to rest, but she would tell them no. She answered every question they asked her and did it with grace. They knew Julian Harvey was responsible for the deaths of everyone on board, but the way he took their lives or the order was unclear and would remain unclear for the rest of time. His motive for the crime was also unclear, however, the fact that Julian Harvey was the sole beneficiary for his wife's insurance policy 
and was, quote, sorely in need of funds was determined to be the likely motive. After Harvey's death, more information came out about his past relationships, and it seems like this wasn't baby's first insurance fraud, or even his first time murdering for insurance money. Mary Dean was Julian Harvey's sixth wife. And personally, I love love and all, but if you're about to become the sixth wife, maybe take a step back and think about why this man has had five failed marriages before you. I'm just saying, maybe he's the problem. And not to place any blame on Mary Dean at all, because of course this is not her fault. But when I heard that she was the sixth wife, it was a bit of shocking information for me. It's possible there are people out there who truly got handed the shit end of the stick, and that's why five marriages didn't work out for them, but in Julian Harvey's case, it's pretty safe to say that he was in fact the shit end of the stick. It's unknown how he split from his first wife, but his second wife and her mother may have been Harvey's first victims. In 1949, Harvey's then second wife, Joanne, and his mother-in-law, aka her mother, were killed in a car accident where he was the driver. He had somehow managed to escape the vehicle before it skidded over a bridge and into a river. And miraculously, he walked away from the crash uninjured. And as a result from this quote-unquote accident, Harvey collected a generous insurance payout. So after the Bluebell incident, the Florida police looked back at this car wreck, and a diver who inspected the sunken car wreck and Joanne's father wondered at Harvey's agility in getting out of the car unscratched and at his failure to try and rescue his wife and mother-in-law after his own escape. Diver Dean DaCosta said, quote, At the speed and short distance, it seemed unlikely that a man could get out of the car before it struck the water, unless he was ready to get out of it. Yet, at the time, a federal court awarded Harvey $14,258 in damages. He also collected payouts after the sinking of two of his boats under suspicious circumstances. He was involved in boats burning. There were also reportedly suspicious plane crashes he was a part of. This man was an insurance fraud maniac, it seemed. His surviving ex-wives agreed that he was a vain, difficult husband and a man whose love quickly cooled. Wife number one, who is now remarried to a Fort Myers, Florida businessman, said, I don't think I satisfied him. I don't think any woman could. He's very egotistical. He worried about himself. He weightlifted a lot. Wife number three, who is now married to a Dallas doctor, said, I don't know which wife I was. It wasn't like being married anyhow. He was constantly interested in his body. So I'm no expert here, but seems like Julian Harvey was a prick. Most damning was the revelation that Harvey was deeply in debt and that he insured Mary Dean's life with a $20,000 double indemnity policy two months before the Bluebell sailed on her last cruise. Investigators believed that Julian Harvey was likely in the process of killing his wife when he was discovered by either Arthur or Jean Duperalt, which is when he decided to kill everyone on board and sink the ship to hide his crime. What he didn't consider was the fact that little 11-year-old Terry Joe would live through the boat sinking and then survive for four days on the open ocean with no food, water, or cover all on her own. 
To this day, why Harvey decided to let young Terry Joe Duprat live is unknown. Some, at the time, hypothesized that he had some kind of latent desire to be caught, as little else would explain why he had no qualms killing the rest of her family, but mysteriously left Terry Joe Duprat alive. I think that he just wanted to get off the boat. I don't know that he wanted to get discovered, because not that I would ever be in this situation, but if I were ever in this situation, I don't think that I would, in a million years, think that an 11-year-old would make it off of a sinking ship in the middle of the ocean at night and survive four days on her own. It's, it's kind of a miracle, if you think about it. So I don't think it's some like, oh, he wanted to be discovered deep down. Deep down, he has a conscience. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he just, he'd killed one too many people that night and he probably just wanted to get the F out of Dodge. You know, that's just my theory. What do I know? After this tragedy, Terry Jo was taken in by her aunt and uncle who treated her like she was their own daughter. Growing up after that was tough on Terry Jo. For a while, she believed her father had survived the attack since she hadn't seen his body that night. She would pick up and leave on a whim. She would drive to North Carolina Beach looking for her dad, and she did that for many years, until she was about 35, which is when she finally accepted that he was gone. Which, again, is so heartbreaking to think about, that she held on to hope that her father was alive and missing for that long. I'd imagine if he had been alive, there would have been news about it, or he would have tried to find his family, but it's possible she was holding out on hope that he had survived and somehow lost his memory. It's just such a sad thing to think about, but I'm glad she did finally find some kind of acceptance and peace about the situation, even if it did take her until she was 35 to get there. Her survival also led to changes in Coast Guard regulations, which required all ships to carry enough life rafts and life jackets for everyone on board. And I also believe they had some kind of rule change where you have to have a brightly colored raft or something. Like the fact that she was on a white raft, there was changes made where it's like, okay, we need to have like an orange one, which is a good change. Because there's a very good chance that if she was on an orange raft, that would have saved her life a lot quicker. Like, she clearly lived, but she maybe wouldn't have been on the ocean for four days. Maybe it would have been a day, because the plane probably would have spotted her. But hey, that change was made, and we love improvement. In September of 1988, Oprah Winfrey reunited Terry Joe with the freighter captain who saved her. But even then, Terry was not healed enough to reveal what it took to survive for four days alone at sea, after the devastating loss of her entire family. She had never given a televised interview reliving the tragic event. Terry Joe, who now goes by Terry, that's spelled T-E-R-E, Duperalt Fassbender, has written a book called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, which was co-authored by renowned psychologist and survival expert Richard Logan, which they describe as the improbable and inspiring story of a young girl who, against all odds, overcame a sea of grief. Terry said, It took me 50 years to gain the strength to be able to give other people hope with my story. If just one person goes on to heal from a life of tragedy, my journey will have been worth it. I am a survivor trying to reach other survivors. It took me so long, but I want people to understand that there is no timeline with healing. It is never too late. So before that, she had never given a TV interview or talked about what happened because she didn't feel ready. 
In her late 40s, her dear friend and co-author Richard Logan suggested she try a sodium amytal or truth serum interview in 1999 to help clarify her memories. He felt this experience would give her the confidence to believe in herself about what she saw and heard. Since she had seen her mother and brother floating in water and blood, but never saw her father or sister's bodies. Terry's story is a testimony of human will to survive. She said, If you're put in a situation that is challenging, you have to adapt to whatever the circumstances are and go with the flow. And I think that anybody that does this can survive. All her life, Terry Joe has been attracted by the water, which is shocking. She's not scared of the water, as you might assume someone who had been through such an intense tragedy as a child would be. She's actually attracted to it. She said, Julian Harvey abandoned me, thinking the ocean would swallow me, but instead it created a bond between me and the water. In our book, I describe what it's like to be dependent on the water for four days. I waited to be rescued. I write about the ocean life around me and the power of that experience. I was forever drawn to the water after this tragedy, not repelled like some would expect. When I applied with the Department of Natural Resources, it was for a position with fisheries. I started working on the water and loved it. I moved on to work in water resources and water regulation and zoning. I went on to protect the water that had protected me as a little girl. Water is life and it is soothing for me to be on the beach. I find I can think clearly, relax, and feel closer to my lost family. Which is really beautiful that she doesn't feel scared about it or triggered by such a traumatic event, but it's actually quite literally the opposite, that she feels protected by the ocean and feels very close to her family when she's around it or in it. So that's really great. I mean, quite the reframe by Terry. She said, I purposely did not run away from water or boats. I was and still am very adventurous. Writing this book has given me closure and helped me heal. The people who have made contact since the book's release have been healing me too. She's had ups and downs throughout her life, which is expected, but she's worked hard on that and has healed a lot since then. As a young woman, she studied x-ray technology, but realized she could not deal with emergency room trauma. She ultimately received a bachelor's degree in cultural geography from the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For 14 years, she was a water management specialist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And now retired, Duperalt Fassbender and her husband Ron live in Wisconsin. They have six children from previous marriages and five grandchildren. She feels very lucky to have her family and her aunt and uncle, who she considers to be her parents. She hopes to continue living a life surrounded by her family and friends and stay healthy, which I think is the dream. And that is the story of the sinking of the Bluebell ship and the survival of Terry Joe Dubralt. Whew, quite the story. I mean, that truly could be a movie and I would watch the shit out of it. It's just unbelievable that someone so evil exists, or did exist, and could get away with so much insurance fraud for so long. Mary Dean was his sixth wife, and he clearly was doing insurance fraud for a long time, including murder, and he got away with it, even though he shouldn't have. So that's mind-blowing. But I guess that's what being a charming, good-looking man does sometimes especially in the 60s. <laughs> like, 
I can only imagine that that really got him very far. <laughs> you know, I mean, it would get him pretty far nowadays, which is really shitty, but like, he could get away with murder. Literally, he did. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. All right. Let's, let's get away from that. Um, just what a terrifying thing for any person to endure, let alone an 11 year old. Like, to imagine being alone in the ocean on a cork raft where, where half of your body is essentially submerged in the water is horrifying in any right. But then picture you're 11 and like parrotfish are eating you alive. Like, holy shit. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, I'm going to post pictures on the Instagram as I do with all the other stories, but uh, parrotfish smile which I don't like. It's eerie. And they have human teeth, like I mentioned. Um, and the the thought of them eating her as she sat there completely helpless is just awful. But also, it's insane to think about the fact that she got rescued off of that cork dinghy at the exact right moment. Because she said truly minutes after she was taken off of the dinghy and onto the freighter, the raft disintegrated. So, like, seconds, down to the second she was rescued at the right time, which is mind-blowing to think about. That's some miracle shit right there. I mean, I'm, I'm not a religious person. I'm a pretty, I guess, a spiritual person. I don't know. Who truly knows what's out there? But that's some, if you believe in some woo-woo shit, that, that feels a little woo-woo, right? At the end of the day, I'm so glad that Terry is doing well and has a family and has found peace and has written a book and has processed and is just living her life and yeah, is surrounded by love and support. That's really all you can ask for in life, I think. Um, and that's great. So I, we wish her nothing but the best. That's really all I have to say about that. But anyway, I guess it's time for me to move on to my good thing. Let's have a bit of a palate cleanser. So what is my good thing? Um, my good thing is that this weekend, I am going to a puppet party, <laughs> which is ridiculous to say out loud, but a few of my friends are improvers and they do puppet shows and they had one previously that I went to and it was an absolute blast. So I'm going to another one and I'm stoked. I can't wait. So I'll be doing that this weekend and that's my good thing. Anyways... Thank you guys so much for listening to my second solo episode. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to get in on that poll and check out all of our bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or a near-death experience that you would like to share with us and possibly hear in an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.